There was this moment in the fall of last year when executives from three big tech companies were called to testify in front of the Senate. I'd call this hearing to order, and I'd like to welcome our witnesses today. They were supposed to talk about the run-up to the 2016 election and whether foreigners, mostly Russians, had manipulated their platforms. Cheryl and Jack, I'm, I'm glad you decided to appear. Jack Dorsey from Twitter showed up. So did Cheryl Sandberg from Facebook. But Larry Page, who was supposed to be representing Google, wasn't there. No one from the company came. I'm disappointed Google decided against sending the, the right senior-level executive to participate. In what Senators were kind of performative about it, but they were annoyed. From Google Search, which continues to have problems surfacing absurd conspiracies, to YouTube, where Russian-backed disinformation agents promoted hundreds of divisive videos, to Gmail, where state-sponsored operatives attempted countless hacking attempts, Google has an immense responsibility in this space. Not long after that, Mark Bergen, who covers Google for Bloomberg News and Businessweek, wrote a story headlined, Where in the World is Larry Page? Implying that the company's co-founder had kind of checked out. With that story, we found difficulty finding people who actually talk to him on a regular basis. Huh. At the same time, you know, he was funding and working on these uh, self-flying car projects doing a lot more around sort of the really crazy moonshots at at the company. But from what we've gathered, he just didn't want to work anymore or didn't want to work as hard. Which I guess if you're a billionaire, you can make that decision. Yeah. You know, I've talked to people at the company that say they had this intentional idea to keep him out of the press to avoid the Bill Gates problem, right? So Bill Gates famously during the Department of Justice um, hearings in the 90s was sort of the figurehead for... Microsoft is a monopoly, um, and Google intentionally wanted to keep Larry as far away from that as possible. The thing is, nowadays, a CEO can't just step away from controversy. Google is in the middle of wrestling with antitrust regulators, attorneys general around the country, and several of its own unhappy employees. This week, we learned that Larry Page and his co-founder, Sergey Brin, the guys responsible for the company's ethos, are stepping down from Google's parent company. Today on the show, growing pains at Google, what it will take to win back the trust of the workforce and keep regulators happy, and how much Larry and Sergey's departures matter. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and this is What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You know, people who cover Silicon Valley like you and live there are sort of obsessed with founders, but a lot of people aren't. So if you have to explain on the most basic level, who are Larry Page and Sergey Brin and why do they matter? Yeah, there's like this mythology around founders and, and Google and Apple were kind of critical in, in forming that, right? Like Google's culture 
uh, Larry and Sergey were sort of the ones responsible for setting that right. They were quirky Stanford PhD students. They they were engineers and they liked to hire engineers for a long time. Initially, the two of them actually approved every single hire in Google's early years. And they had this all these different kind of idiosyncratic rules that were we don't want to be a conventional company. And, and you know, we can work on sort of these crazy moonshots. They had like a 20 percent project. Every person in the company was entitled to go off and work on something with 20 percent of their time that was totally unrelated to their day job. Like people came to work for Google in the early days because they came to work for for Larry and Sergey, right? Like they sort of believed in this and in impossible dreams of building artificial intelligence, of working on these technical problems like self-driving cars. Um, like in the early days, the project of Google Books, right? This idea that they could digitize all of humanity's books. That that sort of thing was an inspiration for people to come come to work for the company. It's been a while since those early days at Google. And since then, the founders have stepped back. About four years ago, they created a new parent company that they would run called Alphabet and put a new CEO in charge of Google. In 2015, Sundar Pichai becomes CEO of Google and and Paige and Bryn become the CEO and president of Alphabet, the the parent company. Um, Who is Pichai and how did he end up in that position? Sundar Pichai is a longtime Google executive. He came in uh, 2004 to the company after uh, working at McKinsey, actually. Um, he was in his first job at Google. First prominent job was managing like the tiny little toolbar. So Sundar worked on that. He actually ended up wanting to be the co-creators of Google Chrome, which is arguably one of the most successful sort of homegrown Google products ever. The description of him as, as a leader is he's sort of very consensus-oriented, very personable, incredibly intelligent engineer who doesn't really have sharp elbows. And that sort of, I think, given there's a lot of of prominent leaders at Google that were known for uh, having a lot of sharp elbows, Mm. Sundar sort of seen as like the nice guy. That's uh, the rationale for why the founders picked him as a successor, both for his technical skill and managerial skills, but also because he, (laughs) he didn't like fight with as many people as others. Talk to me about the corporate culture. You know, for several years, Google had a lot of active internal message boards and regular meetings and discussion and sort of this culture of airing things out. And I'm curious how that has changed. Yeah, that is one of the biggest flashpoints right now. I mean, you can go back to the early days, right? Google set up this that funny, cheeky motto of don't be evil. Yeah. Um, you remember that? And people described it as sort of like feeling like a grad school that just happened to print money. And they had these famous weekly meetings where the founders and, and, and early company leaders stood up and, and fielded questions. And um, the most seminal example was when in 2010, when they decided to remove the search engine from China. And so that people that were there at the time talk about how this like really heated and sort of emotional debate inside the company about this decision. People talk about the early days of Google as this was sort of this robust internal conversation, right, before being made. If you go back to a lot of the controversy that they've had internally in the past few years, people consistently say that no longer really exists. But as time went on, that culture of debate became more pointed. Employees protested actions by the Trump administration, and other employees, notably one male engineer, protested the culture inside Google and critiqued his female colleagues. Let's talk about the past few years. I, I'm just thinking about the things that have happened. Protests around the so-called Muslim ban, James Damore, who wrote 
a memo that argued against diversity and essentially said women were less biologically suited to working in tech. After experiencing mistreatment and harassment. Harassment claims that were uncovered and, and harassers walking away with, with big payouts and, and the subsequent women's walkout and then complaints over military contracts. Nearly a dozen Google workers reportedly resigned in protest. I mean, there have been so many things that employees were upset about. What's the culture like sort of post all of that? Yeah, and you didn't even mention the uh, the Dragonfly, which is a project to go back oh, into China yeah. last year. So, yeah, there's ongoing lists. Um, I, I mean... There's two things. One is for a lot of people, it's still it's a day job. It's a very comfortable day job. I think at this point, close to 120,000 full time employees. Um, So for a large majority of them, these series of controversies aren't aren't necessarily front and center. Um, That being said, in the recent weeks, they've canceled the sort of regular all hands meeting the company has. They've made it much more difficult to have these sort of internal conversations. There are people at Google who think this is long overdue of like, we need to kind of grow up and just get back to work. And then there are a lot of people who've been very vocal. They feel like the company they signed up to join is um, turning in a direction they feel very uncomfortable with. And so they're speaking up about that in ways that we've never seen before. Do you think Larry and Sergey moving out of their formal roles changes things in that respect? Yeah, there's certainly, you know... Speaking to someone at the company who, who did say, like, we hope that they either lead or leave because they, they were sort of there, but not really there. The big asterisk here is they are still on the board and they still own a majority of like the super voting stock. So they're effectively still in charge despite stepping down. I think there was a sense that if they came and addressed some of these issues head on, right, if they came and talked about sexual harassment and the changes they're going to make, or if they came out and said, here's our stance on any number of issues, military or going back into China, or here's, you know, here's our relationship with the Trump administration. That's certainly something that a lot of employees have been asking for them departing is clearly an indication that that's just not going to happen. At the same time that Google has been dealing with increasing unrest within the company, pressure's been mounting from the outside, too. An antitrust case in Europe, investigations by state attorneys general, and attacks from the Trump administration. Larry Page largely stayed out of the public eye, but Sundar Pichai has been more visible. When you think about the role of tech CEO in 2019, um, how much of it is running a company and how much of it is appearing in front of Congress, doing damage control either externally or within the company, you know, being that kind of public face. Yeah. My guess is that it's a lot more dealing with the sort of diplomacy than he expected when he signed up for the job. The part of that is the this new world un, under President Trump, right? Like Google has just had to deal with a lot more issues that it, it never dealt with under the Obama administration, or at least as publicly. Let me play devil's advocate with you. Mm-hmm. There are certainly headlines that have come out since this news broke that say, meh, day to day, this doesn't really matter. Sundar Pichai was in charge of Google, you know, since 2015. And yet, I at least had the wow reaction to this. So is it a big deal? Uh, it is and it isn't. <laughs> it's some, someone 
put it to me yesterday, like it gives a corporate structure to a reality, right? That Sundar was effectively running Google, running Google is 99% of all of Alphabet um, revenue. It is close to that amount of personnel, right? Like self-driving cars, life extension projects, all these things are sort of very small compared to the beast that is Google. It is a big deal in the sense of the, it's going to change the way the company structures its this big tech conglomeration that it's built up. Since announcing Alphabet, it's like never really been clear how these larger moonshot projects and, and experiments are going to be turned into commercial operations and actually like operate like companies. It's a reflection that the board and the founders have decided like they're comfortable with Sundar and he's the one that has to sort this all out. Just a day after Google announced the change in leadership, they made another announcement, one that didn't grab as many headlines but could be very important for the company. It became eligible to compete with other companies for data storage and computing contracts for the U.S. government. One other thing that happened this week is Google won higher federal security clearance, which allows it to compete with Microsoft and Amazon for some of these big cloud computing contracts. And I guess I wonder, is that something we can look at and say, oh, that's the future of this company? At this point, Google is like going in that direction, right? Like the Pentagon last year put out a, a $10 billion contract for cloud computing. Um, so this is a lot of money and it's a big priority for the government and the military in particular to like move over to the tools of artificial intelligence and cloud computing. There was some resistance from its employees. And I think there will continue to be resistance from its employees. But the senior management of the company are like, they basically are see this as a huge market. And they see this as like Google has the best technology. So why shouldn't they be able to provide cloud computing for everyone, and including the military? If you're a user, if you're someone who uses Gmail, uses search, you know, gets lost and uses maps, does this matter to you? Not immediately. Um, I am certainly not alone in that I've been using Gmail for a long time. And I'm not every so often I get this message where I'm like, I'm like bumping up against my like 100% capacity. Do you have that? Yeah. And part of that is I just haven't like cleaned out my inbox very well. But the other part is that is, like I said, Google is becoming a cloud computing company and they're trying to compete with Microsoft and they really want people to start paying for these kind of things, right? Okay. It's not going to happen tomorrow. You're not going to have to start paying for your Gmail. But the company is, as a business, thinking a lot more about, okay, how can we get people to pay a monthly rate for our services? And you're seeing that in sort of Google Maps, right? They're trying to turn that, whether it's you're going to see more ads in your Google Maps potentially, or more companies using Google Maps as a tool that they have to pay for. I think that is a change that regular users are going to see. And that's sort of indicative of Google is like in middle age and it's growing up and it's trying to no longer rely on this fantastic, wonderfully profitable business model that it had for its first two decades. Do you see this change in leadership as kind of emblematic of a change in the company or or Google moving into this new phase? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there was... um, People that work there have to describe it almost like a family company, right? Like uh, you have these kind of two quirky founders and a lot of the executives were people that were in their inner circle for such a long time. And now it's much more of like a management-led company. And in some ways, like they're no longer sort of building up new exciting technology in a way. Like they're not really launching like 
self-driving car projects or something like that. But they're trying to make these technologies either that they have proven that are billions of people are using or the ones that are like self-driving cars that they've invested enough time and money to they're basically in, in maintenance mode. And so the optimistic take on that and certainly Wall Street's take on that is maintenance mode is great and Sundar Pichai is like the perfect executive to maintain this $800 billion company. Mark Bergen, thank you. Thanks so much. Mark Bergen is a technology reporter for Bloomberg. Okay, that's the show. What Next TBD is produced by Ethan Brooks, hosted by me, Lizzie O'Leary, and is part of the larger What Next family. On Monday, Mary Harris will be speaking with former Senator Harry Reid about the latest in the impeachment proceedings. And in case you missed it, you should definitely go back and listen to Thursday's episode, which is the incredible story of this one Montana town trying to clean up the effects of 100 years of mining. It's fascinating. TBD is also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next week. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.